This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Surf Stories, the podcast brought to you by the Florida Surf Film Festival and Surfing's Evolution and Preservation Foundation. I'm your host, John Brooks. With me, as always, is co-host Kevin Miller. What's up, bud? Not much. How are you? Good, thanks. Sweet. I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about this episode. Uh, this is the fourth and final episode from my uh, one-month sojourn to Byron Bay, Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, just thinking about it and talking about it, it makes me miss the place so much. Yeah, absolutely, man. That was a huge uh, trip for you. And you got to interview four incredible individuals. And the last but definitely not least here, we have a uh, author, among other things. Give us the, give us the background on Trisha Chance. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Trisha and uh, her husband, Rusty Miller, from Morning of the Earth fame and their two daughters, uh, Courtney and Taylor. You didn't say fame and fortune. Uh, no, I think they're doing all right. Okay, well, I'm just yeah. saying, like, I was kind of making a joke there. <laughs> I don't think anybody got rich off of Morning of the Earth. It was one of the greatest moments in artistic documentary history. Yes, But, like, yes. I, I just point that out because what an incredible l- legacy to be part of. Uh, Absolutely. Because, I mean, we had that 50th anniversary screening uh, with the 4K rendering which is now available from Justin and Wyatt. Um, yeah. I think you can find uh, Morning of the Earth somewhere out there. Anyway, but it, go ahead. It was so cool because like a lot of a lot of Morning of the Earth was filmed right there in Byron Bay. And uh, to, to then go and, and see that place that I've dreamed about for so long, and, and not just to see it and visit it, but then my good friend Joseph Gimbert lives there, and he introduced me to Rusty and Trisha and Taylor and Courtney and to just be welcomed into like the 
pantheon of surf culture there. Um, and I, I call that fortune. Yes. yes. The, fame that's the fortune, fortune. That's part. The fortune. <laughs> but yeah, um, Trisha wrote this beautiful book called Neverland. And it is uh, essentially a social history of Byron Bay. And it talks about how um, in the 60s and 70s, there was kind of a migration of surfers to Byron Bay for obvious reasons. The surf is phenomenal. You've got, um, right, you know, Queensland is right up the road. You've got Snapper. You've got uh, in Byron itself, you've got the pass. You've got Broken Head just to the south. Lennox is 20 minutes down and Gary's a little beyond that. I mean, it's just world-class waves all in this one little zone and beautiful mountains, a kind of a tropical like climate, um, more tropical birds than I've ever seen anywhere else, including the zoo. (laughs) And, um, so all these surfers were migrating to this area from particularly Southern California and Southern Australia, guys like Rusty Miller, right? That's where he and Trisha met was in Byron Bay. Um, she was a backpacker from Canada and, uh, and they met and never left and, Raised two beautiful daughters there. Bob McTavish, George Greeno, Nat Young, all those guys, Bob Cooper. I mean, they, if you go all, on with that list, we'll be done in two hours. Yeah, I mean. Because it, it goes on and on. It's and insane. It, they right? all just ended up migrating to Byron Bay and really shaped the culture of Byron Bay. Um, because Byron, I didn't know this prior to the the what it is now. Byron Bay was an industrial town. Oh, it was really? an industrial whaling town. And it was gross. Like, she has beautiful uh, pictures in the book um, that are black and white from back in the day. And there's, like, a railroad that runs right through the middle of town. And it's all industrial complex and uh, manufacturing. And, you know, they're dragging whale carcasses right up onto the beach and slaughtering them. Like, it was kind of a gross industrial town. And then all these surfers migrated there. And they turned it into this beautiful, like, cultural center for the arts and for... Um, yeah, you know, I mean, doesn't Albie Falzon live there? He lives right in Brokenhead. George Greeno still lives in Brokenhead. I mean, yeah. it's, they're all right there. It's just, and it's become this, uh, art and culture center of Australia, if not the world. And largely due to the fact that surfers moved there and transformed it into that. And that's what this book is an homage to. Yeah. And, um, I'd love to read it. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And Trisha's, uh, she's got, the chops to, to write the book. She's, uh, she's very educated. She's, um, just to list off a few bachelor of arts from university of Waterloo, bachelor of journalism from Carleton university, bachelor of arts, human geography from university of new England, Mm. a graduate diploma in urban and regional planning. She's a certified town planner, um, from university of new England and then a graduate certificate in higher learning teaching from Southern cross university. So cool. A really intelligent woman. And, um, very articulate and well-spoken and it was just a real treat for me to get to sit down and chat with her and she just basically told me the story of byron bay and wow. how it became what it became and this is going to be good it's phenomenal yeah okay once again i am in your shoes listener and uh gonna really soak this one in uh but thank you for doing this john and uh why don't we you have anything else you want to add before yeah we i, I just want to say thank you to trisha um it was so nice on my last night in Australia is when I recorded this and her daughter, Courtney, Beautiful. who I got to meet, uh, they threw me a little going away party. Oh, nice. And so my, my last night in Byron Bay, I sat at the dinner table with 
uh, Rusty Miller and Trisha and Taylor and Courtney and Emmy, who's Taylor, Emmy Cataldi, who's, uh, we did the episode with, who's Taylor's partner. Um, and we took a little break and Trisha and I went, uh, into a, a quiet room and recorded this episode. So wow. thank you for taking the time to chat with me, Trisha. Apparently, apparently they want you back. Hopefully yeah. <laughs> I'm coming back whether they want to or not. <laughs> okay, All right. So, all right. Enjoy this chat with Trisha Shantz. piece of property here in Byron Bay or just outside. Are we technically in Byron Bay? We certainly are. Yeah. Okay, so we're in Byron Bay, and I'm sitting here with Tricia Shantz, and um, she's written this wonderful book, which is her third? Fourth. Fourth book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the book is called Neverland, and it's um, just to summarize, it's, a, it's kind of the historical documentation of Californian and Australian surfers migrating to the Byron Bay area and then their influence on Byron Bay and its development. Is that, is yeah, that a fair yeah, assumption? Fair yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It was not, it was a little known history, I guess I could say. So I call it a social history because it's, they're surfers, but it's how they changed the town. So to know a little bit about Byron, it was working class town if you like I mean now everyone's heard about it all around the world I'm sure, sure your listeners who doesn't know about Byron but in the early days like I came in 82 actually on April 19th 1982 which is wow. coming up so yeah. I remember the day it was like this yes. stunningly gorgeous you fall in love with it why would you leave which I didn't because I'm from Canada southern Ontario okay so this was it and it's been home ever since wow um, yeah so it was a tough town and it, in those early days, I'd say, look, we live south of Brisbane or we live near a place called Lismore or yeah. south of the Gold Coast. People didn't know where Byron Bay was. Oh. Surfers did. Of course, surfers did. Sure. So um, the book evolved out of me wanting to write a, a contemporary history of Byron Bay in the 70s and 80s because I came in the 80s and my partner, Rusty Miller, came in 1970. And so I started to do that, and then it was just too big. It was <laughs> too big. So I ended up just concentrating on what I knew, which was the surface, because I've heard all the stories. Sure. And met most of the people. And so it just sort of, that was the genesis of it. And it still took about five, six years to do. Wow. Um, Part-time, not working full-time on it. Sure. But it, it's, again, for the history of the North Coast, because we're situated in the north coast of New South Wales in Australia, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. The mainstream press continually would perpetuate this mythology that Byron was, you know, colonised by hippies because yes. there was a festival called the Aquarius Festival in a place called Nimbin, which is just 50 kilometres inland. Okay. And it had a famous um, festival called the Aquarius Festival, which is 50 years next month, so they're oh, having wow. a celebration. And people called it sort of Australia's Woodstock. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't in the sense that Woodstock was a big music festival. Right. And Aquarius was organised by the Australian Union of Students and they oh. were architecture students and they wanted to explore different ways of building and living in houses. Oh, and interesting. It, it, it is. It was absolutely – we're going to go next month because it's awesome. going to – because I wasn't here, obviously, in 73. Yeah. So there's this mythology that this is how Byron became uh, what it is. And it wasn't because 
the surfers were here far before then. Like, and so I started to research and, and found out that the first American surfer that came was in 1959, which was Bob Cooper, who I'm sure all your listeners will know well. He was from yes. Santa Barbara, very influential figure in the surfing world in shaping and ended up um, with Cooper's surf shop here in, in Australia at Coffs Harbour. And, and sadly, Bob, after I interviewed him, did pass away. Mm. And so, but I got his story and he's just was a lovely man. We used to go stay with him up in Noosa where he ended up living. Um, every year we'd go up there. Okay. So that was 1959, way before 73. And then sure. oh, who came next? And, you know, it was actually Phil Edwards. And Phil Edwards, who is yeah. weird in surf lore, yeah. California surfer, um, He'd come with Bruce Brown, who was filming Surfing Hollow Days, which was a yes. film, and they were with Paul Witzig, who was another well, was an Australian who was just starting to make films, and mm-hmm. Bruce involved him, and Cooper was there too on that trip. Okay, so that was sixty one. Yeah, and there's a picture in the book of Phil sitting on the headland, the lighthouse, which you've been mm-hmm. to. Not a tree on it. <laughs> it's oh, wow. grown. It's, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. This place, everything that's happened, you think it's been 50 years. So that's yeah. a long time. And I got to interview Phil Edwards over the phone. Oh, wow. This was done sort of during COVID times. Okay. And he was willing to talk, which was really great. And he just loved that time. He rem- This is the interesting thing because the other two books we did as well. Um, well, this one's my first solo and the first two books I did, The Turning Points with rusty mm-hmm. and you'd out of the blue contact someone 50 years later and say oh hey look you know i've got this picture what do you remember or in this instance you were in byron bay in 61 and you know this is 2020 we're asking three <laughs> clearly remember like that's oh, what wow. was so um such a zeitgeist because like one so for the other book like a guy called rodney sumter and he's in the uk Got the time wrong, it's three in the morning. Hey, Rodney, got this picture. You're at Bells Beach, 1970. He wrote exactly as he remembered it. It was clear as day. And Randy Rarick as well. They remembered what boards they were surfing. They wow. remembered conditions. And you think, Am I, was it that special? It was that special. Yeah. So same with Neverland. Like, Phil remembered being here. Remembered. And they all did because it was such a special time and a unique time it just yeah. was early days in a small town that they then got to be part of the change and got to enjoy it at a time when it changed from being you know a mining town it had like the beaches were all sand mined um there was whaling here until 1965 so those early guys saw whaling yeah uh there was a huge meatworks which Belongel beach is on the northern side of the town as you drive in we actually went there today well that we was went, yeah the whole thing was a big um abattoir where they slaughtered oh cattle. wow goodness and it was that whole section as you drive in there it was and that had been going for like 60 years or something like that mm. so that was still there until 83 it was only when it closed down um and it used to cast this 
smell across the whole town. Like <laughs> I mean, yeah. in a northerly wind, yeah. <laughs> it would be. Slaughterhouse. <laughs> well, it was. And you'd drive in on that Ewingsdale Road and there would just be this stench that came. And they had a bloodline going out as well. And it was oh, like Bill Engler, actually, who's in the Neverland book, who was an early surfer. He came in 68, mm-hmm. um, lived on this very road where you and I are meeting. And he went back. In 73, because he said it was already getting crowded. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I should read something out of it. but um, Anywhere should be so crowded. You know? I know. Well, he said people had discovered. I, they ha- I'm not going to say they had the best of it. That's not true. Because the other reason for writing the book is there's so many new young surfers and posters that come here now sure and they think that the guys that were here 50 years ago in the 70s because they see the photographs of relatively empty waves and they think oh you just had the best time but what they don't know is there was no work you had to create your own you had all these like it was a slaughterhouse town so there was the main street was factories so Mm. the mining on all of the beaches was processed on the main street and it took up the three blocks that is now where Woolworths was. Okay. And then there was Norco, which was a factory that was slaughtered pigs. And oh, goodness. Yeah, so it was not a pretty town and you didn't just walk in and get a job. And so the, the town wasn't pretty. You did have mining on the beaches. The waves were sensational. So that's what every like – Sure. The first question for everyone in the book, um, which is interviews. So I did – about 70 interviews and there's about 43 in the book. Wow. And it was, you can jump in if you want to ask a question. No, no, no. It was originally just going to be about the American surfers and then I realised that I had to include the Australians because they actually, it was this creative mix between the two that ended up creating this the change of culture and and from that slaughterhouse town into this world-class place for surfers. And yeah. it was so, like Jack McCoy was here and he met Dick Hull and mm. they they formed Hull McCoy Films. Yeah. And Jack taught Dick a lot and Dick went to Hawaii then and he learned and he met Randy Rarick and, and Randy had come here in 68. Yeah. So there's this incredible and then um, – George Greeno was here. So, mm-hmm. you know, that progression of surfers, it was Phil and then 62 they showed that film and everybody in California saw it. So it was like the word was out. Yeah. And then 64, a guy called Derek Beckner came and then 65 was George Greeno. But the photographs started going into the surf magazines and there was this particular photo of Broken Head that is in the book and the guy that just that took that photo... Um, John Penning's just, he just passed away about three weeks ago. Oh. It's the quintessential broken head shot that everyone looks at and says, Yeah. Did it look like that? And so <laughs> that was pinned on the wall of a couple of guys in Hawaii, Don Morley and Greg Weaver, uh-huh. who's a Californian. Yep. And a creative um, photographer. And so he was, they were here. They came in 68 as well. Yeah. And they just saved up, they built a bunch of boards. And just came over and just on this basis of that photograph that McTavish brought over and showed them. Okay. So, yeah, so there's these, I know, so there's just all these, you know, and then Witzig started making his films and, you know, he met George and McTavish met George and they started 
making boards and Nat Young was here again on this very road yeah. living, shaping boards. So there was this um, Mikadora like <laughs> made of an appearance once too. <laughs> yeah, I saw his picture. In there. Yeah. That's like the major bloodline of surfing ran through Byron Bay. It did. And I didn't know that as, when I as started. As much as it did through Hawaii or, or California or anywhere else. And Absolutely. And yeah. Unplanned. Actually, this is the funny thing about Rusty. One time a guy for Coastal Watch wrote a story about him and called him the Forrest Gump of surfing because he never made any <laughs> plans. He just ended up like being in California when it was surfing was just exploding. Yeah. And then Hawaii and Kauai at a different time. And again, shortboards were being built. Bunker Spreckles was there, Brewer, mm-hmm. all of that. And then he ended up here. And it was happening here. Like, got to experience three sort of beginnings, nascent beginnings of, of a lifestyle and industries and small towns, being yeah. in small places. And so he started a newspaper with an Australian called David Guthrie, who wasn't a surfer, but um, there was a lot of polit- political about the surfers that came because keeping in mind the time that was going on was the Vietnam War. Sure. And so some had been there, like, um, and a few of them, like Roy Meisel, who started Bare Nature, mm-hmm. which is an, was an iconic surf shop. He'd been to Vietnam and come to Sydney on his R&R and joked that when he went to Vietnam, the boards were like 11 feet or something. And when he came out, they were down to like about seven or eight feet. You know? Yeah, yeah. We thank George and Nat for that. That's it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, and then the other guys didn't want to go to the Vietnam War. So it's not like they were, um, they weren't dodging the draft, although Wayne Lynch was. Sure. He, and he makes that very clear. It's like he's well in documented. The yep. It's well documented and... I totally understand and why would someone like that be forced to go to war? It was just not sure um, for someone like him to go. So he was he was here on the run for a couple of years on the North Coast mm. and one of the, the picture in the book is the only shot taken of him at that time. He was living in his car, which is a little VW mm-hmm. hug yeah. um, with his dog, with his surfboard, with wow. his girlfriend. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, and so he did tell me where they were living sort of just on the edge of the Shire, just on the coast there. It's hard to imagine now, but in, there wasn't the coastal development that there is now, like that whole Ballina sure. end as you get into Boulders Beach and Lennox Head is in the next Shire along. Yes. It's really starting to develop that coast. But this, it was just bush and there was no road between Byron to Lennox. It was just a dirt oh, really? track. Oh, okay. And you kind of had to bump along to yeah. it. And there was no road in town for those listeners who know Byron Bay from town to the pass or to Watergoes. There was no Lawson oh, wow. Street. You actually had to go up a back street and go up down this street called Massenger Street where there's a great little coffee shop called uh, the Top Shop. Yes. I yeah. had a, Joseph took me to have a burger at the Top Shop. You got to get an <laughs> American burger? Yes. Yes. <laughs> of course. He said it's the best American burger in Byron Bay. And so. it totally is. Yeah. yeah. They do a good job. And yeah. they're just a great little hang place. And so, yeah, you, that was just a little, in its day, it was the local, kind of they called them milk bars in okay. Australia. Uh-huh. Yeah, where you'd get your lollies and your milk and your bread. And yeah. it was, it's still an old timber building, which is great. It's done up a little bit, but they've kept yeah. the style. But, um, yeah, so you'd have to go up there to get down to the okay, So there wasn't a road. Yeah. So we just forget. And in f- and where the Bolondal is was actually a road in front as well. Okay. And that went in the 74 
cyclone. So okay. There was a cyclone Pam in '74 that yeah. really reshaped some of the um, beaches. Okay. And, and one of them was Belongil. Wow. And it's yeah. interesting because um, you talk about how developed this area is getting. <laughs> um, and I've been really fortunate to be here now for three weeks. And I've gotten to travel. Joseph's taken me on like a, a gr- wonderful tour, you know, basically from Byron down through Angary. We've yep. kind of seen everything in between. And um, people have asked me, including your daughter, Taylor, said, you know, what do you think? Like, what's your impression of this area? And my my first response is always, I can't believe how much undeveloped land there is. <laughs> oh, no. And I was lucky enough to go to college in Santa Barbara mm-hmm. and spent time in Southern California and have just seen the onslaught of development there. There's literally nothing left on the coast. There is no undeveloped land on the coast mm-hmm. until you go well north of Santa Barbara um, and get yes. up into Central California. Um and, th- and that's actually what this, what Byron reminds me of. It, it, re- it reminds me of, that, that's the other question I get asked is, well, what, what's it like? And I said, well, it's not quite like anything, but if I had to describe it, I would say it's like Santa Barbara with a subtropical climate. Yeah, our because, climate is sensational, yeah. that's for sure. And you're seeing the best of it this time of the year. Yes. And that is one of the reasons the Americans did come was already... California was crowded, and it's hard to imagine in the early 60s that there were thousands of people already surfing, and you had freeways and shopping centres, and there were no shopping centres here. They didn't exist in Australia. They didn't come until sometime in the 70s, and the first one that opened in Sydney was, you know, it's in folklore of of (laughs) history because it was this fantastic thing. and, um, And so there were individual little shops. So the Byron Main Street, you could go to your butcher, you could to buy your meat, you'd go to the fruit and veg shop. Yeah. Everyone remembers, and it's in the book, there was a uh, little cafe called McGettigan's Cafe, and it was mm. two quite older women, like in the 70s, who were twins and really short, like you couldn't yeah. see them behind the counter. <laughs> and it was the famous place for the surfers to go because they would go in and get a hot drink, uh, not coffee like now, that's the other thing that the hipsters think, that, oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you could go in and get your barista, you know, yeah. double shot ristretto something yeah. or whatever <laughs> but in fact it was like international roast which is a funny coffee that's not that great yeah that was existing but and there was a fire in there and and it would open up early and the surfers would eat a lot and these yeah and was these two little sisters the mcgettigan sisters the mcgettigan's cafe it's it's again it's a folklore that one yeah um so the main street was really just one block that yeah. was it oh wow yeah it didn't even sort of went to the Great Northern and the title of the book Neverland, um, the Neverland shop was opposite the Great Northern and that was the end of, that was all that was on the main street. Mm. And then the next block was the post office and the community centre but there was no businesses. You then had houses. And what, s- interesting. Yes, and now, and that's why I guess people are, it's happening quite quickly now and it's interesting you said that because my next book that I'm working on right now is a history of development and activism on okay. the coast from the 60s because in doing this one, well, these guys, and I've got to say it wasn't just guys, I better talk about the women too. Yes, I yes. Did, I did <laughs> we do a book talk um, down south and at the end of it this guy said to me, you haven't mentioned any women. And I went, oh, my God, I'm usually really good about that. I don't know what happened. But um, while the young Americans came, 
in the 60s and 70s to experience it in that low-key, small village atmosphere at the same time, which I'm just exploring and researching and interviewing for the next book, is there was an American company that came to develop the whole north part of our shire. Oh. They bought 6,000 acres and that's what's called Ocean Shores. And they, it was a, in 68, it was a $100 million development in 68. Oh, wow. When these guys here were getting a dollar an hour to, you know, yeah. work on the road or do whatever. Um, and then also Broken Head had an American company. So that one was Wendell West. And okay. it's a famous story. And it was all, it's a whole other book. And the South, our other boundary, which is Broken Head, which is a nature reserve. Right was another a Florida company called Fox Gold, and they bought it all up as oh well. Oh, goodness. And there's all kinds of stories about that as well. So that'll be the next book. But in the meantime, these... Yeah. So ironically and just extraordinarily, surfers came to just surf without fail. That's why they, every, they didn't come here to make money. Sure. They didn't come here to, just to, to get a job. The only reason they came was the surf was good. So they had to create their own business because... There was the Meatworks, there was Norco, and that was it to work. Wow. Basically, that was it. Um, and the way, the was there whaling at that time? Or it that finished in 65. Okay. The mining only finished in 72. Okay. So they all experienced, and um, there's some photos in here of the mining on the beach, yeah. and the actual processing plant didn't close till 77. It was one of the, um, my mind, my brain doesn't remember everything, but it was one of the biggest in the world. Oh, wow. And it, yeah, it's again the figures are kind of in the book. I was shocked to find that out how much they took. It was Rutile and Zircon, and mm. so um, Tallers was mined, Main Beach was mined, Belondrel. Um So yeah, so they were and on to yeah. Just for our listeners that maybe wouldn't understand that process, um, is that when you say like m sand mining, they're yes. literally like combing it out of the sand that's on the beach. Big machines, yes. Wow. Yep. And like sifting it through, leaving the sand behind and... Gouging, like just gouging, completely changed the dunal system. Oh, wow. Which, yes, which might be part of the reasons. I mean, look, coastlines are naturally eroding sure. anyway. And we do get storms here. The last cyclone was 74, which was Cyclone Pam, which mm -hmm. there's one picture in the book of the main beach where it, it actually the waves came from the main beach right down to the main street to oh, the to, yeah to the low point which is where the Great North Hotel Great Northern is okay. so that still to this day like we had a lot of rain last year and it filled up in that place mm. waves didn't come down the main street and no one would like to see that happen again that's yes, for sure no yeah so we do um, so yeah so that was happening so all they wanted to do was surf so they just created like the surf shop was Bear Nature was Roy which was the third surf shop in town. It was a real hub for uh, Americans. Um, he did that with his wife, Diana Green, who um, they came from Northern California in about 72. And they, they actually um, set that up with a guy called Bob Newland. So Bob came really early in 68 and he created one of the first um, board bags, which sounds pretty crazy. Interesting. And, yeah. Like a travel bag? A travel bag, yeah. Okay. And a leg rope. Yeah, and it oh. was a company called Surf Aid, which is still in existence today in the industrial estate. So he was really entrepreneurial, and him and 
um, Roy started Bare Nature, which wasn't just a surf shop. Like Diana would go up to the Gold Coast and get crafty things, leather from one of the guys, another American guy from Florida, um, Bill Connor. Yes. Who, yes. yes. I, think I can't not mention Bill. I think yeah. he's the only Floridian in the book. The rest are Californians and then there is actually a guy that was from Wales and the reason I included him is him and his American partner um, started a cafe up at the main beach just at the pool there called Land's End. Oh, okay. And Jim Cox is his name but he didn't – he wasn't interviewed for the book but he was part of – so they – and Derek set up a, a, a shop called the rib cage which was a food shop which is where fresh is now so there's still legacy of what they did um kathy and danny carlton came from santa barbara and they were in partnership with george greeno avocado farm Mm. and so people just did whatever it was to kind of make um oh and bill engler and marcia marcia um created the first granola in Australia, because wow. we didn't have it, which sounds crazy, and she baked it up at Nuri Bar, which there's a um, oh, there's a famous restaurant up there now called Harvest. Nuri Bar mm-hmm. is a tiny little village. We went and had lunch there. Yes, well, that's <laughs> where she made her granola. Wow! And she sent uh, the recipes in the book because she still had. Interesting. She would, she would staple the little. Um, the tag, if you like, it would be in a plastic bag and then she'd mm-hmm. staple it and the surface could just pour milk into it and eat it. Eat it right out of the bag. Eat it right oh, out. Yeah, wonderful. so Greeno did that and like, because, you know, you just, it was just really easy. Yeah. So they just created these businesses so they could live here and, and surf. And it wasn't about, well, Bob did do really well with his surf aid and like it's still today and he got mm-hmm. into real estate and that ended up working in real estate. But he's gone back and lives in Hawaii Roy's still here living in the same place behind where he was, um, yeah. which is great. So there's a few that are still here. Not Some came, some left. Um, George still lives here, right? George is Broken still Head. in the same place, yeah. yeah. And so George gave me an interview, which is pretty rare. Oh, wonderful, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, George likes to talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, he got that land in the 70s, built his pyramid house, He's such a rare, incredible genius yeah. for what he did. Um, Innermost Limits of Pure Fun was filmed in 68. Yeah. So there were actually a lot of films that were filmed. So after the Phil Edwards one, mm-hmm. then Paul Witzig started filming. He did Sea of Joy here in mm-hmm. 70. So they were – and those movies were going out and more and more Australians were coming. Like the Australians were coming early too. They'd bring the train like when they were 15 – I don't know how their parents and mothers <laughs> let them, but they <laughs> hop on the train from Sydney and, and there was a train in those days, which doesn't exist today. Okay. They would bring the train up to Byron and they'd just go sleep on the sand dunes or at the surf club, which is the clubbies one. Yeah. Go sleep at the pass in a tent and you could just do that and they did at yeah. really young ages. So it's been on the map for the surfers for a long time for the Australians and then the Australians really discovered it. But they they worked side by side in the things that they created here. And that's what I really explored and loved to hear about, how it was kind of a spark. You know, yeah. they each created a spark with each other. And Tracks magazine, so Albie Falzon, David Elphick, mm-hmm. they would come up here to get inspiration. Mm. And so, and Lisa Coote, who was David Elphick's partner, she was a part of that and she was the reason they went to Bali for the morning of the earth. Mm. You know, it was her idea. And so 
she said Byron was their nirvana when they were doing tracks because they would just come up. And so Garth Murphy wrote for tracks. Rusty sold ads for tracks. So they were kind of at the forefront, too, of what we think is so novel now because after COVID you can work from home. Sure. They were doing that then so they could base themselves here and go to Sydney, not with, you know, on an airplane, didn't have computers and mobiles and all that, but Rusty'd put his car on at Casino at the train station and get off in Sydney, work for two weeks and come back. Mm. Garth could write from here yeah. or go down if he needed to. Jack was working then. McGilvery Freeman mm-hmm. um, hired him to do things. And Witsick was down at Palmer's Island. And Peter Troy, who's a mm-hmm. well-known, um, probably one of the inveterate surfer travellers early days around the globe, was up near Noosa, a place called, I think it was at Coolum in those days. Okay. And so they had a film company and Jack could work for them, but he could live here. Yeah. So people didn't think that existed before computer age, but they were doing it. They were actually pioneering. So I call them pioneers because they yeah. were... That's, I mean, that's a very accurate description and um, and it wouldn't have been easy because um, I, I, I remember, I haven't um, read the whole book, but I have bit, flipped through and read several passages and I remember remember one passage talking about how like especially when those first guys were coming that the local law enforcement <laughs> was not happy that they were here they probably would have been you know in support of it remaining as like a mining town and the the whaling and that sort of thing and so here come yeah. these degenerate surfers sleeping That's on it. the beach and so I, I would imagine they probably tried to run those guys out of town and we haven't got there yet. We've forgotten about the drugs in this. Yeah. <laughs> you had to bring it up. I wasn't even remembering to talk about that. Yeah. Now, McTavish talks about it a lot, like he's done his memoirs, and where you were actually driven out to the main highway, the num- like the main coastal highway goes from Sydney to Brisbane, mm-hmm. uh, a different configuration now. It's got these roundabouts. But in those days, it was just straight highway drop them off, cut the hair first, and then oh, just goodness. get out of here. Yeah, they wow. were. And yet there were surfers here. So how I had to really b- approach it was it was the surfers who came, both Australian and Americans, to Byron, without um, negating the fact that there were surfers here. Like there was, you know, the Campbell family. So Donnie Campbell and his brother Brian and his sister Denise was a really good longboarder, and they lived here. And Max Pendergast is mm. a local, local, born and bred he was here. Um, I think it was LG Reed that was here, and they were surfing. There weren't a lot, but it was the it was the surfers who came that changed it because they brought different attitudes and different work and different and they travelled. And so it really was on the international map. Everyone that was anyone in that surf world, they came through here. You know, so your yeah. Nat Youngs and your McTavishes and. And George's and and, and, they and very entrepreneurial, it seems like. Um, they had to be. They had to create a way to make a living. Yeah, I reckon if you put a bunch of surfers in a place that has beautiful scenery and beautiful waves and a great climate, they'll figure out how to stay. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're quite a crafty bunch well, look, when it comes to that. Yes, you are. And, and actually, the book only goes up to 74, and the last person in the book is a guy called Dan DePel. And so each one of the people in the book could be a book in their own right. Sure. Dan was a classic, um, no longer with us, but he 
grew up in Manhattan Beach. His mum was an LA real estate agent. She mm-hmm. was a committed Christian and she did not want her son to go fight in the Vietnam War because thou shalt not kill is a tenth command is one of the Ten Commandments. Right. And so she Dan was in a band in those days, um, called the Nutwood Rug Band. So Esther, bless her soul, she paid for the whole band to get on a boat in nineteen sixty seven to mm. come to Australia. Wow. There was five or six of them. And so they came to Australia. They were full-on long-haired hippies, (laughs) (laughs) all surfers. Yeah. And then they slowly made their way up to the North Coast, and Dan bought the run-down, closed-down old Norco piggery that used to slaughter the pigs. Okay. In 74, he bought that, and he had this vision to turn it into what was called the arts factory. Mm. In the broadest sense of the word, so they, that's what I mean. They brought a cultural shift. He brought the music, so you yeah. know there was newspapers, films, photography, cafes, whole food, whole food cafes, vegetarian cafes. Because other than that, you just kind of went and got meat, yeah, to to veg in the in the local place. And so Dan, um, that was so visionary and so um, ambitious because, so. Jim Stevens, who's was Dan's good friend and came with him in those days, still here. Mm-hmm. And um, his wife Marion's in the book too. She's from Florida and Saint Augustine, and she came over with Bill originally. Okay. And so um, Jim tells me how run down that place was when they bought it. There was like pipes and 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 electrical things, and yeah. like to actually see that and have this vision that he turned it into the Arts Factory, which then spawned what's called the Blues Fest, which is just on our past Easter weekend, yes. 30th year or 35th year or something like that. So we could live in this tiny town and every big-name band that you ever wanted to see came through because they'd play Sydney and they'd play Brisbane and, and they could just stop in on the way and they loved it. And it was extraordinary, like the old Arts Factory and... And it was an arts factory, so Bill Connor, you know, that was from Florida, he did mm-hmm. his leather work, and a guy called Colin Heaney, another American guy, did, um, he started off with candles, and then he ended up doing glass work that got sold all over the world. Okay. Jim started doing um, flowers and things there, and so people lived there, and and it was an arts factory. Yeah. Yeah, um, which is a kind of a conundrum. You'd sort of don't think arts and factory go together, but it was such a play on words, if you like. Sure. And bands every night of the week. Yeah. And it it had its trials and tribulations because I remember in those days, people like it drew big crowds. You know, you could see incredible bands there, and and so there would be cars parked, and it was just a tiny little street. But hmm. um, anyway, people came to accept it, and yeah, and it became something bigger and then it became a backpackers as well at the same time. So that's yeah. what he did. Um, awesome. Yeah, I know. It, it's funny when I, um, when I was telling some people that I was coming on this trip, um, there's a, a guy that's a, a longtime surfer and a guy that I look up to back in New Smyrna, his name's Rick Tresher and he traveled all over the world in his youth and um, has two boys that are wonderful surfers. And I was telling Rick, he's, I actually don't know how old he is, so forgive me, Rick, if I say you're too old. I, I would imagine he's in his 60s. Um, but I told him I was coming to Byron Bay, and he said, oh, he said, you got to look up this guy. He's from St. Augustine. His name's Bill Connor. He makes, <laughs> he makes the best leather hats. Yes. And, yes. Uh, and, and 
Rick had come here as a uh, chaperone for uh, ESA, like amateur surfing uh, event that we have, like the, um, they're the organization in Florida mm -hmm. that uh, does all the amateur surf contests. And they took their team and brought them for like the world titles. And they came to Byron Bay and, the, and he linked up with Bill and yeah. got a hat apparently. <laughs> And yeah. then, and there's still, there's a great, um, little connection with St. Augustine in uh, Lauren Hill. Yes. You know, Lauren lives, uh, right up the road in Broken and, um, she's a wonderful longboarder from St. Augustine. So she is. it's funny yeah. how those little pockets, like a lot from Santa Barbara, quite a few from St. Augustine, like they just yes. get, it's almost like they've, they figure out this little vein that goes back and forth and then. They tell yep. a friend and a few more people come. And, and isn't that wonderful about surfing? Like that is the best thing. Like it is tribal and it is – you can go anywhere in the world. Yes. Because um, we went to Portugal uh, the first time was I think 2012 and Rusty had called – he'd emailed Drew Campion and said, Drew, who's mm. the Mickey Dora of Portugal? Oh, okay. <laughs> and Drew What came, a question. I know, I know, I know. Um, and so – he came back with uh, the name, and I'll probably pronounce it a bit wrong, but Joao de Macedo, who okay. lived in San Francisco for a while. He's a big wave rider, so yes. he, ra he rides Mavericks and um, and he rides um, Nazare, yeah, still, and is in Save the Waves. Like he was on, I think, their board for a while. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, okay, so out of the blue, you know, email Joao. Oh, we're coming to Portugal. Ah, oh, you can stay with my parents. I'm in San Francisco, but you know, um, you can go stay with them. Which we did, and he was there then, and we did meet him, but we stayed with his parents, and his dad had been the finance minister for Portugal. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then he was a, you know, at that time he was a, a professor of um, economics at a university. Okay. That while we were there had a conference called Value of the Waves. And so mm. it had the mayor of Paniche, because Paniche has a world surfing league um, contest, pro contest, but it also has... Uh, sardines, you yeah. know, the big factories out there. And so he, they value, oh, and the Secretary of State equivalent, it wasn't called Goodness, that, but yeah. it was a surfer. And wow. so it was all in Portuguese <laughs> and we went and sat there, but they included us and it was just, they they were putting a value on waves economically that yeah. they were important. It was just, and then, but the whole coast, you know, they would say, oh, when you go here, go see this friend and go see that. And that's how we got to the Lisbon um, Surf uh, Film Fest. Yeah, the Surf at Lisbon, yeah. Yeah, just happened to arrive and it was on and we had a great time and actually jack mccoy was there showing his was it deeper shade of blue might have been i'm trying to remember 2012 yeah 12. yeah i think that would have been it yes and and oh david carson was there you know the oh graphic. yes yeah, yes he david. happened to be there so like you just lob into these sorts of and then we got to sagrish which is the southwest corner of continental europe and of Portugal mm -hmm. and you can see where those explorers went out so you can see and and surfers it was a, it's a newish culture in Portugal I mean it didn't when we were there so it's a decade ago you know there weren't generational surfers right they were like Italy where you know you were fishermen yes and you had generations of fishermen and for your son or daughter mostly sons go out and be a surfer it was like what are you doing you're not producing anything yes yes <laughs> how can you be doing that and so they became these surfers so um we went down to sagrish and it was the tail end in this gorgeous little hotel at the very end of the peninsula there and it was called surf culture hmm. that's all it was called there was no contest it was <clears throat> just talking about surfing wow and the guy joao ray 
we met. We just walked in the lobby and he was just taking it down. And he goes, oh, come on, you've got to go and have a drink. So we went and had a drink and we met him and, and then you know met other people. And then he invited us back four years later. And that's where we met Wolfgang Block because he was there mm. and Sandow Burke was there wow. and Andrew Kidman was invited and another guy from the UK. It was this – they put – this incredible program together for a week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just eating and talking and going on hikes and no surfing contest whatsoever, just yeah. surf culture and talk about it. Oh, that's and ideas. wonderful. Oh, and photo, sorry, photographic exhibitions. So okay. Kidman had his posters. We had photographs, um, Wolfgang with his art, Sando with his art. Wow. Yeah, so it was a cultural um, get together. So yeah, yeah. Surfers well, I feel like surfers by nature are artistic in what we do. The mm. act of riding waves is very much about personal expression. Um, people have their own unique style. Um, they, they try to do it in such a way that they feel is either pleasing to the eye to someone else or just pleasing to their own uh, sensory, you know, of this feels good. So yeah. this is, that's why I do it this way. Um, but I think there's a rich history of surfers that are artists in other ways, um, oh, in yeah. more traditional ways, you know, whether it's music or paint or writing or things like that. So I think the two kind of definitely lend themselves to each other. But um, So you can fit it in amongst your surfing. <laughs> absolutely. And it, well, I feel like it's an extension of your creativity. Yeah. You're surfing along with whatever other artistic endeavor that you do. Um, well, interestingly, a lot of the Americans that came in those early days, in the early 60s and through into the early 70s, they were from families that were sort of professional middle class, you know, like, you know, the dad might have been an optometrist. Um, Danny's dad was a psychiatrist, the head of the American mm. Psychiatrist Association or whatever. And they didn't want to live that nine to five Monday to Friday life. Yeah. Their parents and McTavish again famously, you know, his dad worked in a bank or something and you kind of figured out that that's not once you became a surfer, you just couldn't do that. So it wasn't against the parents per se, but they had enough thinking and the wherewithal to to change their life and to actually go and do something and change countries. So when they came, they didn't just come on a three-month working visa or they came to stay. Like yeah. This was it. They, they didn't even check it out first. They they arrived and this is where they were going to live and stay. Mm. And so that's quite brave in those, you know, not knowing that much about it. And, sure. And just trying to figure it out as you go along. Sure, yeah. it definitely is. And you can see, um, for me, having never been here before and then coming in 2023, you know, so many years later, but you can see the effect of um their cultural influence and their artistic influence in yeah. in byron um and also too i think it's safe to say that um, a lot of the environmental consciousness of byron in this area um probably originated from surfers would you say yeah it actually it's interesting you raise that because it's it is true so on lawson street was where another guy earl cochran and maggie his um partner who's American, she's gone back to live in Georgia um, and, st and lives there now. They started the Whole Milk Cafe and out the front was all these fig trees that mm. gave shade for the cars and that. And one day the council came along, like in the night, 
pretty much or early morning dark. As councils do. Yes, <laughs> and chopped them all down. And oh, this, no. And so this was the beginning of quite a lot of the, their beginning environmental bent, if you like, to, to – they – yeah, they tried to stop it. Like, I guess they must have known that it was maybe going to happen okay. and then that's why the council came and, and did it in the night. But this, yeah, so it was the beginning because um, they could see how a coast could be developed, obviously, coming from California. Sure. Um, Australia wasn't so... The, but the Australian surfers that came had travelled overseas then and, you know, like, Nat had gone overseas and, and McTavish had gone overseas and, um, and then... Wayne Lynch had gone overseas in the mid-60s. He'd gone to Hawaii already. So yeah. they knew what places looked like and so they were more willing to want to um, protect the places that were here. So they certainly that was an element of, of staying here and, and, and it just, you know, without plugging the new book, and it's just my head is completely <laughs> in it because that's what I've been doing all week. Yeah. And just looking at the beginning of coastal um, acts to protect it you know, and how that came about with governments and how we have to activate to... If you didn't ever have people objecting to developments that are inappropriate, this place would be completely different. And so we're known to be a difficult place. Byron is, like it's known for its activists. We must be the most written about small town in (laughs) Australia. And, And developers know that too. And so some won't even come here. Or, you know, I just was reading something today that um, even as late as the late 90s, early 2000s, that if you were going to do development, you would factor in court costs and you'd have lawyers already. Wow. So I know because there's so much... Yeah, because you're going to get community that has a say. So people are politicised and they are vocal and they're knowledgeable, they're educated... And they've lived in a lot of other places. So Cavan Bar was the original name for Byron Bay, the indigenous. Okay. Um, so we're in the Bunjalung Nation. We should have started with that, actually. Yes. And it's the Iraqwal people. And so the name was Cavan Bar, which is meeting place. Oh. And so one of the – I can't call her an elder because she's not yet, but she does a lot of our welcomes to country Delta. And it what it stands for, it's the meeting place. So the different tribes from around within the Bundjalung Nation would come to Byron, they would meet, they would eat, they would talk, mm. and they would leave. Well, people have been doing that. White people have been doing that since they came. And yeah, well, I forgot, you know, and all that history of what it was. Logging was big. This place was covered oh, in yeah. rainforests, and it was all logged and chopped down. So mm. that's why in the it was quite barren hills in the seventies after. And dairy farms were here in the 60s. So there was farming. So all that. Yeah. Um, but tourists do that. They come and, and eat and eat and greet and talk and leave. I've been one of them the last <laughs> three weeks. <laughs> Not a bad thing. And so it's so it's got that transience and it's always had a transience. You yeah. know? So I guess what people who live here want visitors to do is to respect the place because there are people who live here. It's not just a tourist town to trash. Sure. It's um, a place that people have to still work and take kids to school and and live in. So you want people to – and I want people to understand its history. But I, I don't know if we're running yeah. out of town. I always love to read out of a book. And um, yeah. I don't know if you want – and I don't have no, my reading glasses, be. so I'm going to see whether I can possibly read something out of this. Um, and it's a bit tricky because it's my um, – it, what it is, it's a piece out of um, 
one of my favourite friends and journalists, a guy called Craig McGregor, who passed away. He was 84 or something just Mm -hmm. um, when I was doing this. And Craig wrote a lot about Byron. He came here really early on in the, like, to live and to travel through he was one of australia's foremost journalists and he he really had an eye on this place of what it was and what it was going to become and he was a Mm. surfer too and he loved music oh wow and so he wrote in this book called soundtrack for the 80s and it was about okay so I'll, i'll read from it it says you climb up highway one it's going to be terrible with my eyes. <laughs> Here, do you want to tr- I have uh, reading glasses. Have you, you got try reading mine? glasses? Yeah. Let's try those. They're not real strong, but... No, no. Nope, that's, that's strong not strong enough. Work. Okay. No. All right, we'll see how we go. It's the end bit that's the most important, but um, it's how you get to Byron, okay? Uh, it's probably not going to work with these... Anyway, in the end, you, you so if anyone knows Coastal Highway 1, um, which doesn't exist anymore like it used to because we've had um, a dual carriageway that's been built between Sydney and, and um, Brisbane. But what happens is you get... Do you want me to, to read the, it? Uh, if you want it. I can. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah why not? If you, if you yeah. want to get that, that passage. Yeah, I do. So it says, you climb up Highway 1 onto the hills which stare over the east coast 850 kilometers north of Sydney, whip through the fast S's that snake along the ridgetop, past the dense green banana plantations and dairy farms and bangalow palms, the ridge falling away rapidly to the right, and suddenly there it is, Byron Bay, an enormous, limitless, crescent-shaped sweep of seawater fringed with white sand culminating in a high rocky cape and the virginal white phallus of the lighthouse. The township is a mess of galvanized iron roofs fractured by Norfolk Island pines. Looking north across the bay, past the twin Julian rocks whitened by a million years of bird droppings, past the trails of Brunswick Head's prawn trawlers heading for home, a jagged backdrop of mountains dwindles away into Queensland. On a clear day, you can just make out the towers of Surfer's Paradise rising out of the water like some surreal Atlantis. I've come to think of it as the most stunning seascape I've ever seen. See Naples and die. See Byron and open your mind. <laughs> Thank you. You read sure. that. Yeah, and, it's, and that's what the... American surfers and the Australian surfers did. They opened up their mind. Yeah, what, what a wonderful description. It's a beautiful description. And yeah. we used to live in Kurabel and now live in Byron Bay, but we lived out in the hills. And every day I would drive that mm. pretty much. And you'd be on the top and you could see it. You can't now because the trees have grown and it's a different highway. Sure. And they've got sound barriers, so you actually don't get to see that anymore. You don't. And everyone has that memory of getting to that crest of the hill and it just takes your breath away because there's the, as he described, the, it's the green rolling hills mm-hmm. is quite, well, coming from Florida where it's pretty flat. Yes. <laughs> you must be appreciating it because they're quite, they are spectacular. And right now it's as good looking as it ever gets because we've had just such a spectacular summer. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. And it, that's what originally drew me to Santa Barbara was the hills, you know, anywhere there's hills right next to the ocean. Yes. You get these wonderful vistas and crags and big cliffs that fall away into the sea and it's just mesmerizing yes. um 
And so, yeah, to, to, but Santa Barbara is quite arid. Yes. Desert like, and, and it's beautiful in its own way. Um, but this is very familiar to me because it, it has a similar climate to Florida and it's subtropical. It's warm. Um, there's all this, uh, beautiful foliage and the trees remind me of Hawaii. Yes. Big broadleaf tropical trees. I've never seen so many birds in all my life. Or heard them. Or it's, heard them, it's, yeah. It's like a cacophony, like you actually yeah. really can't believe it. Every morning I get woken up by rainbow parakeets and white cockatoos and kookaburras. Yes. And it's, it, I it's feel like, like a, I'm at the zoo. Uh, it's like a tropical jungle. And, and yeah. I know like our hinterland, like when you get out to Kuribel and Federal and there's properties and it is like Kauai and people equate that to yeah. it because it, you can, the beauty of it not trying to sell it to anybody either (laughs) it is subtropical so you can actually grow avocados and bananas and mangoes and but you can grow stone fruit and you can have coffee trees and you can have guavas and you can have oranges and tangelos and lemons and limes you can actually grow pretty much anything because we've got you know the red volcanic soil so there was the old um yes it's the plug from the um the volcano that was Mount Warning, which is um, Wollumbin, which is the cloud mm-hmm. catcher name, um, indigenous name. And it's, it's just the richest soil. So that's just grows. And yeah. so, yeah, so it was an agricultural place as well. I mean, but that was the hinterland, whereas the town itself had sort of industry, if you like. Sure. Um, and there's there probably would only be a few dairy farms left, but people... Some of the young people, which is great, are coming in and wanting to farm and grow food because mm-hmm. you probably realised through the pandemic that what was all you needed, you needed food. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of do. important. Yeah. yeah, and the roof over your head. And yeah. um, and you can grow it here. You can have your own veggie garden even um, just at that level and grow herbs and you can grow a lot to eat yourself. Yeah. And it grows well with I say you can be a lazy gardener here. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny, I, I, it's, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that the indigenous name um, means meeting place because I reckon it should, it should be the staying place because it <laughs> seems like everybody that comes here wants to stay. Look, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a guy here uh, um, who'd started a tea tree business years ago. He's, he's so far out, Chris. And he just has this theory that underneath the ground there's all these sort of electronic or electric magnetic something or others because it it does draw you here. There is, uh, yeah. It's not being hippy trippy airy fairy or anything. There's sure. it's it's seductive and it, I just come across so many people all the time who say, oh look, you know they came through in the '60s. So many people did. They drove through and they always wanted to come and live here and. They've gone and worked in the city or overseas or had families or whatever, but they always wanted to end up here or always wanted to move here whenever mm. they could. So it's, it's, it is seductive, and I call it a vortex because it, it does suck you in. Yeah. But the secret to not getting jaded because there is development going on, obviously you don't think so, but for us who've lived here for a while, there's quite a lot that's happening in the, on the main street has completely sure. sort of that southern end has transformed into three-storey, which is the height limit that we have. Um, so you go away because you're always glad to come back and you appreciate it again and realise how good it is. So the kind of the secret to being here, and look, you know, people complain everywhere, <laughs> I sure. suppose, but people <laughs> will complain about a pothole and I go, yeah. if that's all you got to worry about, yeah. you've got a pretty good life. I yeah. mean, so what? But... That's what happens if you don't get out and 
and I'm not saying overseas either, either. I just mean just to go away and come back puts it in perspective. Sure. And, um, yeah, there is something here. There's, you know, it is. It I, is I can attest. Yes, because <laughs> you've already said you're coming back. I, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> again and again. Yes. Yeah. I do have one last question for you. Um, the title of the book, Neverland, you uh, you did mention that it was uh, named after a shop in town, but yeah. what was the inspiration behind that? Uh, so that was a woman called Nari Abbey who was married to Garth Murphy who with Rusty Miller and Mike Doyle had started Surf Research, which was the first surf accessories business in mm -hmm. California. And when they sold that, Mike went to Mexico, Rusty went to Kauai, and Garth came here and he met Nari and they married. So her and um, Nat Young's first wife, Marilyn, they opened up Neverland, which was on Johnson Street. And, I mean, it I guess it's sort of like, you know, Peter Pan not want to grow up, <laughs> of course. Um, but they made their own clothes. They were the first to import clothes from Bali and sell mm. them there. It was a colourful shop. Like I actually woke up one morning because when you write a book you live with it and sure. I just woke up one morning and it just hit me vividly that the surfers turned the town from that grey, black and white into colour because they brought mm. music and they brought film and they brought all these and restaurants and things or cafes. And Neverland was painted... Um, uh, pastel colours, the whole thing. And so mm. it was an old wooden house on the main street and it just stood out and they all played music and hung out and they had hippie kind of clothes. And, yeah. you know, um, and so that was Nari and Marilyn starting that shop and it really was different to anything else that was on the main street. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah, and there's a picture, a John Witzick picture in there of the opening of Neverland with Garth, Rusty, a guy called Jimmy Sunshine and Spider, <laughs> oh, oh, um, who was John Adrian. Yeah. Um, and they were playing the music for the opening of Neverland. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and nobody well, played music on the main street in those days. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. it's that's a very fitting uh, name for the book and, and yeah. definitely represents, as you said, kind of um, that childlike uh, wonder that I feel like a lot of most surfers have. It's Something yeah. that, you know, especially if you were fortunate enough, like I was, to ride your first wave when you're very young, it's a really fascinating thing. Um, and you feel um, you feel kind of transported almost to a different dimension, not to get yeah. too, like, hippy-trippy about <laughs> it, but you just, you do, you're riding on this energy, and yeah. it feels amazing, and then I feel like we spend the rest of our lives just kind of chasing that feeling because it feels so good and we just do it over and over again. And, and it doesn't um, produce anything, does it? <laughs> no, it's completely useless. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it, not. There's endorphins not. and all it of that. It produces joy. It does. Um, and, and is there anything more important than that, you yeah. know, for humanity? So. And look, it's, you know, the old surfers don't grow up. That's not true. I mean, they were sure. creating businesses and doing things, you know, that's grown up enough. I mean, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with wanting to enjoy what you do and have it so enmeshed in your life that you you know I'm an old Jewish friend said if you love what you do you never work a day in your life yeah and I mean sure they don't always love what you do there's bad bits to it sure but why not create that life around your surfing and look that's what all those surf companies did like Rip Curl Billabong and yeah. Quicksilver yeah. they were certainly just let's and they did it well <laughs> they, were, they were just trying to figure out how to keep surfing that's all like, it was you got to make some money to exist in this world and so yeah they they yep, did that. They um, did. Well, it's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tricia, for spending an hour with me and just 
having a chat about your book and, and giving us just this wonderful history of Byron and uh, the, the people that came here and the people that influenced it and helped its development or lack of development, yes. um, if we'd say. Um, and where can folks find the book? Uh, well, at this point in time, it's on our website. So you have to order online, rustymillersurf.com. Okay. Uh, all the local bookstores in my in this region here and in capital cities have it but it's not in the states yet but okay. you can order it online and i've sent lots to the states already into okay. the uk so um hoping to get a distributor over there and maybe come over and do some book talks which would be fun wonderful yeah wonderful yeah. well when yeah let me know when you get that set up and then we can promote that um for folks in the states that want to get the book as well yeah and uh again thank you for spending time with me and um thanks for inviding me of course of <laughs> has course it been an hour already it has it oh, has time um, flies yeah now we're gonna go eat a wonderful meal that uh, your daughter courtney has prepared we on this are. beautiful piece of property and yep. um i'm gonna enjoy my last night in byron bay which oh, it's the last it's, night this oh, is the last thing. night yes <laughs> i'm i'm i i will admit i'm already looking at tickets to come back so yeah well look um we've got a friend coming back from california next month for the month he's gonna stay here oh wonderful okay uh, steve barilotti used to be oh, editor yeah. of surfer yes yeah, and yes. he was a regular until covid so everyone's just kind of starting to come out of that covid sure and and coming over again because we missed two three years there sure easily yeah Even almost four almost four yeah yeah so um the rush is on again which is great oh wonderful yeah we love it awesome well thank you again trisha thanks all right cheers Man, I tell you, just going back and listening to these interviews from when I was in Byron, I, I get goosebumps. It's yeah, crazy. I like, you. I mean, I, not that I had forgotten about it, but just reminding myself that on my last night in Byron that Rusty Miller and Trisha threw me a going away party. Like, yeah. what? Like, no. it was, yeah, it was unreal. It's magic. And and your your whole trip just came to a, a wonderful bookend right there with that interview because I mean what a beautiful thing to like go to the 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 place that's the Neverland, right? And yeah. to experience it all and then have that at the end of the trip is uh pretty yeah. amazing. It was amazing. And I could have sat like I think this episode ended up being just a little over an hour and Trisha could have talked for three more hours and okay. I could have listened to her for three more hours. She just, she is able to basically recite the history of Byron Bay and the amount of people that she knows that she and Rusty have encountered over the years and hosted over the years. It, it really, it, it's like an encyclopedia of surfing almost. Yeah, I mean, no it's, question. it's insane. How can uh, readers get a hold of this book and will, you know, if it will be on audio? Uh, I'm not sure if it will be on audio. There is, they have an Instagram page. Um, I believe it's called Neverland the Book. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, they don't have distribution in the States as of the, as of right now, but it was okay. something that Trisha was working on um, because she said to ship the book from Australia to the States is pretty cost prohibitive. Yeah. Um, a few people have done it, um, but it's, yeah. It'll it'll eventually make its way, and uh, we'll make sure to add a note on our Instagram page when it is available. Absolutely, in the States, and we can also link it up in our link tree. 
uh, online so uh, we can sell some books for her. I personally can't wait to get a hold of it. And so, yeah, you know, what's cool is that bef- right before I went to Australia, I was talking to Rick Tresher. Yeah. And he was telling me, he's like, man, he's like, I just got this book. He was one of the guys that paid the exorbitant shipping no anyways, because he's like, because he's been to Byron Bay with, oh with the boys. And um, yeah, he was just like, man, there's this great book. It's called Neverland. And it's just a, it's the history of Byron Bay and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. At that point, having no idea that I would get to have dinner with and interview the author of the book. Ah, what a gem. And yeah, it was amazing. That's cool. So. We got to get a few, a few boxes of them over here for the festival. Just have them lay them around. We'll maybe sell a few for her. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Maybe if we do it in bulk, it won't be as hard. I mean, yeah, we're no bookstore, but we will sell some of those books. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, anything else? Let's thank a couple of sponsors. Like yeah, the yeah. Surfing's Evolution and Preservation Foundation. Uh, Atlantic Center for the Arts for putting us up uh, and doing festivals for us and having us. Uh, we obviously have some Rourke Apparel, Globe, Yeti, Sunbum. Monster Energy. Yeah, Josh the lawyer. Yeah. Josh Wagner, the lawyer dude. Yeah, Wa- Vasileros Wagner, if you need any help. Uh, they'll take care of you. Yeah, Brian Lehman. Oh, Brian Lehman. Lehman Financial, Financial Services. Yeah. Yeah. He'll play with your money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and in a good way. He'll turn it into make more, more money. money. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks again for all the support, and uh, we'll look for the next one. I think our next guest is Darius Legg. Yes. Filmmaker of Stoker Machine. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Cheers.